This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode, I have back fan favorite James Kukios, U of M alum and partner at Morrison and Forrester. We take up issues from the Morrison and Forrester October anti-international anti-corruption alert. We consider the DOJ guidance on corporate inability to pay. We take a deep dive into the unit oil in Broglio. We look at the EU whistleblower initiative. We consider OECD concerns around enforcement in Brazil. And then we ask, in Mexico, are things really going to change? As always, it's a great episode with James. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And I'm extraordinarily pleased to have James Kukios, uh, partner at Morrison and Forster, uh, to talk about the firm's always great uh, monthly international corruption uh, alert and newsletter. Today, we're going to take up some of the topics that the firm looked at in the September newsletter. So, James, uh, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. James, I always find it interesting at the end of the fiscal year, uh, we see some SEC enforcement actions, and this year was no different. We saw three enforcement actions literally right at the end of their year. And I'm beginning to see in uh, the SEC enforcement actions some really um, pointed uh, compliance practitioner tips. And these three cases uh, seem to me to... uh, a point towards those. One of those was a hiring case, uh, whether you call it the princes and princesslings, uh, sons and daughters, but it was a hiring of sons and daughters or relatives of government officials. Um, and in that case, the company didn't seem to to really understand that that issue, uh, if not an FCPA violation on its face, it's a high risk FCPA issue, and it needed more management. Um, a second case involved a U.S. company, or I should say a Canadian company, that expanded greatly overseas and got into trouble because they didn't have processes in place to um, really facilitate uh, being FCPA compliant. And the third case, perhaps in many ways the most interesting, where you had what I call control override, or, or more basically you might say the CEO was in on the scam. Um, but I was wondering, kind of sitting where you guys are, both doing white collar defense, but also really advising companies on compliance programs. Did you see uh, anything or different in these cases, or uh, did you really want to take it in a different direction? No, I I, I agree with your points there, uh, Tom. I think it, it, to start out with the timing of these investigations or uh, resolutions, it is very interesting. The end of the fiscal year for the SEC is extremely important. It, you know. For DOJ, it was always the end of the calendar year, um, and you, you might see DOJ bring a, additional resolutions in December. 
Um, but for the SEC, it's really the end of the fiscal year. I don't know uh, precisely why. I think it probably has something to do with appropriations or their money or justifying their budget for the year. Uh, but you always do see a, um, a spate of resolutions in September, um, the end of the fiscal year for the government, um, when the SEC tries to bring a lot of cases. Um, these are interesting. I mean, none of the three have um, DOJ analogs, or no DOJ parallel resolutions. So these really are, um, in many ways, um, even if there were anti-bribery um, charges, and I can't recall if all, any of them did, but these are much more compliance-related. Uh, these are publicly traded companies, and so you know the SEC oftentimes takes a little more strict look at internal controls and books and records. And will bring cases, send messages, much like the ones that you uh, mentioned today, Tom. A couple other things I, I just wanted to mention that I saw, um, thought were interesting, and maybe we can get back to your points, are um, for one of the cases that was brought um, was a, a, a printing company. Um, which is not always thought about as a as a high risk industry. Uh, you know, you think of oil, gas, telecom, pharma, and med device, uh, other extractive industries being kind of the the historical ones. This is a printing company, um, but SEC did something interesting, not unique, but I always find interesting in that the Quad Graphics resolution, which was not only were there um, uh, public official bribery allegations in there. But SEC also included in the resolution commercial bribery and sanctions-related conduct. Um, again, not the first time we've seen that, but it really just does go to show that the SEC takes a very broad perspective on compliance and their ability to reach many different kinds of compliance failures, uh, alleged compliance failures, through the use of the books and records and internal accounting controls provisions. So with the um, uh, three cases, uh, I thought, as I think we both saw and have seen, they provide some really interesting information and I thought really helpful and pointed tips. And But the next um, question I had for you or issue I wanted to raise rather is one that, that may have significant implications in the future. And that is a restitution case brought under the auspices or brought in the connection with the OXIF FCPA settlement. And while this case may be very unique and stand on its own uh, for uh, without really setting a precedent that a lot of other companies could use, I think the fact that um, uh, the Africo company who has sought a restitution successfully survived a motion for summary judgment or a motion to dismiss, and now the Department of Justice has uh, actually come in and suggested, uh, I think said, that they agree with um, the uh, applicant's position that restitution is due. And I was really uh, very interested in in what your take is, not only on this case, but perhaps even more um, what it means going forward. Yes, this is a very, very interesting development. And in fact, two there were two decisions in September that kind of highlight uh, the um, sort of the traditional DOJ position on restitution in FCPA cases, and now a potential refinement of that position um, when it comes to restitution. So his, as a um, starting point, you got to think about the legal basis for restitution in any case. And one of the things that you need to have in order to have a restitution order is there has to be an identifiable victim. 
And the problem with FCPA cases is uh, it's hard usually to say that one particular person or one particular company was harmed as the result of an FCPA violation. I think we all can agree that society at large is harmed by um, corruption, that uh, competition is, is harmed by corruption, um, that good government is harmed by corruption, any number of societal ills from corruption. But it's hard to identify a specific identifiable victim that could actually be uh, given restitution for that harm. Unlike, say, in a Ponzi scheme case or a, a, a pump and dump stock scheme where you can say this is the person who suffered uh, a pecuniary damages of this amount of money because of this, the societal harms are much higher, harder to ordinarily identify uh, 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 an identifiable victim. Oftentimes when these restitution case, um, claims are made, it's by an instrumentality of a foreign government. We've seen that a couple times. Several years ago in Miami, uh, the state-owned telecom of Costa Rica called ISE uh, tried to make a restitution claim saying that um, uh, Alcatel, they were the victim of a bribery scheme when Alcatel allegedly paid a bribe to one of their, um, the ISE officials uh, in order to uh, take illegal actions uh, that harmed the company. DOJ argued then that ISE was actually uh, facilitated the corruption, was corrupt itself, and therefore really could not be considered a victim under the statutes. And it was a complicated procedural case, but that that viewpoint essentially prevailed. In in uh, just recently in September, um, there was a similar, very similar to decision again in Miami, um, where a um, Ecuador's state-owned oil company made a very similar claim. Uh, saying that a defendant in that case owed them restitution because he allegedly bribed a Petro-Ecuador official um, uh, that caused Petro-Ecuador harm. And the magistrate judge in Miami said, DOJ took a position again that Petro-Ecuador was corrupt, facilitated the corruption, and could not be considered a victim. And the Miami magistrate judge agreed and ruled that Petro-Ecuador could not be considered a victim. So that's kind of the, the traditional DOJ approach. Either you can't identify the victim or the government instrumentality was actually in on it, so to speak, and therefore was not a victim itself. Now, that brings us to the Oxif, which is a very interesting development because there the argument was, and I'm going to oversimplify, the alleged victim there um, once upon a time owned mining rights in a specific mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the, the scheme allegedly was they were they had those mining rights taken away from them, and then there were bribes paid to judicial officers to basically dismiss their lawsuit trying to get the uh, rights back. And then as well, there uh, was a uh, bribe paid to judicial officers to delay announcement of um, that decision so that the victims could, um, voted against their interests to transfer their interests for a paltry sum. Kind of complicated, but long story short, the argument there is that the shareholders uh, were the victims of this bribery scheme, and, and they were innocent, um, unlike the government instrumentalities in the other cases, and they're identifiable, unlike society at large. And therefore, they should be allowed to pursue restitution based on the amount of money they lost as a result of this scheme that deprived them of their 
um, financial rights in this mine. Uh, and DOJ actually initially opposed it. They actually agreed with Oxif um, that uh, they should not be considered victims, the shareholders, um, and opposed it. But a judge in the Eastern District of New York said, no, no, no. Um, these are actually identifiable victims. Uh, they've showed causation, and they are to be considered victims under the statute, and therefore they are entitled to restitution. And the judge remanded it to the remand's wrong word, but sent it back to the parties to do further briefing on how to calculate the precise harm uh, that the shareholders suffered as a result of that. As you said, jumping ahead, we're, we're talking about the September newsletter, but just recently, recent developments after September, DOJ has come back and said, Judge, you're right. Um, it's not as much as the shareholders say um, they were entitled to, but they are entitled to several hundred million dollars of um, restitution. So that's all a long way of saying very interesting development. We may have found, and DOJ may agree with this, a, that there is a narrow, relatively narrow set of cases in which there can be restitution to a narrow set of victims of an FCPA violation. Uh, I think it's going to be, if this case is an indication, it's going to be more where you can find a private company, private citizen um, who is identifiably harmed by the FCPA violation. The interesting thing is, does this create a slippery slope? So, for example, if I'm a if if I bid on a tender for let's say a, a, a railroad construction project in Africa, and I lose that um, because my competitor paid a bribe to get it, am I now an identifiable victim who is entitled to uh, restitution for being deprived of that gain? It's a difficult. It's it's somewhat speculative, and so that might be a reason to de deny um, restitution in that case. But at the same time, maybe the Oxif decision and and potential policy change by DOJ opens that up. And so what all that means, and this is a very long answer to your question, Tom. <laughs> what all this means is that when companies are considering resolving a matter with DOJ and SEC uh, and potentially other jurisdictions. They can't just think about the money they have to pay to the government in those situations, but they may also have to think about the fact that a judge might decide that there are also identifiable victims and there might be a monetary compensation that has to be paid on top of those penalties and disgorgement paid to the governmental authorities. So, James, uh, in another podcast, uh, I'd I want to take up the uh, – Guilty plea by the C, former CEO and COO of UniOil, the Asanis. But one of the things that struck me in the criminal information that was released was a lengthy list of companies that had done business with the Asanis and allegedly uh, uh, used them to pay bribes. And it identified uh, with some specificity without naming the entities where the company was headquartered and where the bribes were paid. And it struck me as that could also be a very valuable list in the context of this OXIF matter for uh, private companies, privately held company, commercial organizations, not countries or state-owned enterprises who lost out, uh, lost out on tenders, lost out on business opportunities uh, because of bribery and corruption to at least explore the possibility of bringing a, a claim similar to Africa because they may be able to specifically identify lost business opportunities or business opportunities lost to bribery and corruption of those companies identified in in that uh, criminal information. I agree. You know that 
that's going to be more difficult. There's something a little bit more speculative potentially about um, saying I lost out of, of this and therefore I lost this amount of money, whereas the de- deprivation of mining rights, maybe you can say it's a little more definitive. But absolutely, this opens up the possibility for um, restitution claims litigation um, based on on this. So it's going to be very interesting to watch this develop. How, what position does DOJ take? Did were they kind of forced into it in this particular case by the judge? Um, do they do they actually have a change of heart in this? And, it, and is there going to be a private right of action or some attempts uh, to to find a private right of action for these kind of claims? It'll be very interesting to watch. I found this to be really one of the most fascinating developments, and I and I really like the fact that there are the two decisions, you know, kind of back to back, one showing the historic government instrumentality viewpoint where DOJ opposes it and this new potential way for private companies to seek restitution. Very fascinating development. Um, I guess I'm an FCPA nerd, Uh, but uh, it'll be really interesting to watch this develop over the next couple of years. Well, I certainly am. So uh, uh, I've thought about this a lot. And the uh, the other thing, and you touched upon this in your uh, remarks, that companies or at least counsel to companies need to start advising companies, hey, this potential restitution claim is out there and uh, you may not have to reserve for it. You may not have to do a lot, but you at least need to think about it in the context of your overall FCPA settlement uh, going forward. Absolutely. So, James, um, there was one other development uh, listed in your September newsletter that I've really been intrigued to ask you about, and that was some remarks by SEC Chair Jay Clayton um, lamenting the perceived lack of international anti-corruption enforcement efforts. Now, for our listeners, let me remind them that this newsletter, or excuse me, Client Alert is entitled Top 10 International Anti-Corruption Developments for September 2019. Um, One of the if not themes that you have articulated over the time we've done this podcast together, uh, but you certainly touched on the international scope and the burgeoning international scope of anti-corruption investigation and enforcement. You've talked about specific cooperation by DOJ prosecutors and uh, prosecutors in other countries across the globe. Um, So I was, I guess, befuddled by these comments by Chairman Clayton, uh, and it's just not... um, I guess it's something I don't see. I see an increased uh, effort around international uh, anti-corruption efforts. So teeing that up, what what are your thoughts? This was a, I agree, this was a little bit puzzling to me as well. Um, It's interesting. If we kind of look at um, Chairman Clayton's history, we go back to the fact that in um, 2011, he helped write a paper for the New York City Bar Association that was critical of FCPA enforcement. And largely because of what he called the, quote, unilateral and zealous enforcement of the FCPA by the United States. His position back in 2011 was, look, we're doing this alone, um, and it's not effective because other countries aren't helping us. And that wasn't unreasonable in 2011. Um, I think it started, that's when I was in the FCPA unit. um, And, you know, one of the things we were actively trying to do was increase our cooperation with um, other law enforcement authorities. I think the OECD has, has gone a long way towards that. Um, you know, I think it really, we really did change that and other countries became more open to that. So it wasn't an unreasonable position in 2011, but my feeling is that the, the, the terrain really has changed since then. 
And Chairman Clayton seemed to think so as well in 2017 when he was going through the nomination process. Uh, he was asked about that paper, and he said um, that, uh, and I'll quote again, that it, uh, his observation was that non-U.S. enforcement agencies, quote, appear to be uh, more prevalent, unquote, in uh, anti-corruption enforcement than they had been when, when he worked on that paper. So it kind of seemed like he had turned a leaf, that he had recognized um, you know, what I saw, what we've talked about, which is there has been a lot more international cooperation in the anti-corruption sphere over the last decade. And then these, these comments did seem to come out of nowhere to a certain extent, at least for me and, and you, um, because it seemed to be going backwards in time. I do wonder, it was a little bit of a nuanced argument. One of the things he was saying was that he thinks that FCPA enforcement efforts may be having unintended consequences due to a lack of coordinated global anti-corruption efforts. And so um, he emphasized that he did not want to change SEC's FCPA enforcement stance, that they were going to continue to vigorous, vigorously enforce the FCPA. But his concern was, I think, that uh, there had been gaps left where countries that were not enforcing foreign bribery laws were actually stepping in to the breach and exploiting the fact that now the U.S. and, and its uh, partners around the world were not paying bribes. They were now paying the bribes and getting the advantages for that. I suspect, um, although I don't know, that this may be a reference to China. Uh, this has been a constant concern by the business community that China does not enforce its foreign um, and bribery law and instead has has gone into places like Africa uh, and uh, really paid a lot of bribes to African officials um, in order to win development projects and, and construction projects and things like that. Uh, that uh, U.S. and other uh, Western countries and, and uh, kind of the big big countries other than uh, China and Russia have backed off of because they're not paying the bribes. So I suspect maybe he has something very specific in mind and maybe not an overall um, uh, statement for all international cooperation. That's my own assumption. I don't know that for sure. But what he did say was going forward, he was going to make this a, a point um, when he met with his overseas colleagues to enforce the, um, the need to coordinate more closely and to try to um, close some of these loopholes so that there weren't bad actors who were exploiting these kind of um, gaps that were that were being created by uneven enforcement. That's my best way to to try to make sense of this. Uh, again, he emphasized the SEC was not going to change its approach, but that he was going to try to encourage other countries to be even more vigorous than they have been. Well, it's certainly a, a very nuanced argument he was trying to make, and un unfortunately, I think it lost many people, including me, uh, in the translation. But uh, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But once again, I've been visiting with James Kukios, partner in Morrison and Forster, where we've been talking about the uh, firm's top 10 international anti-corruption developments for September 2019, Client Alert. James, as always, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Thanks a lot for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you'll join James and I again next week where we take up the firm's October uh, anti-corruption, international anti-corruption newsletter. I know you'll enjoy it and find it informative. Thanks again for listening. I hope you will 
uh, check out some of the other podcasts in the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.